and then cue the Baudrillard mix. The very rules of eating, of negativity and singularity, including the ultimate form of singularity, which is Welcome to another edition of the Machinic Unconscious Happy Hour with your host, Cooper Cherry, the man that can make the golden flower bloom in the night, and my illustrious Mentat co-host, Mr. Taylor Atkins. We've got a spicy episode for you guys this week. First, we just want to mention, you know, we're supported or sponsored rather by the People's Institute for Revolutionary Semiotics, and we do have a Patreon account at patreon.com forward slash M-U-H-H. Consider dropping us a buck a month there. And if not, leave us an awesome spicy review on iTunes. Today, we're switching up our typical content, and we're going to take a dive into Max Avery's new book, A Masterpiece in Disarray, David Lynch's Dune, and Oral History. Max, thanks so much for joining us and for writing this book. To start off, we'll just have to come with guns blazing and ask you, are you indeed an Orthodox Herbertian? Well, first of all, thank you, Taylor and Cooper, for having me on. The show is definitely, uh, it's a brain melter. Like, I, I can I can feel my, like, like neurons firing when I'm listening to it. And, uh, yeah, I, and I just want, you know, the listeners at home to know that uh, today's going to be the special needs episode of the show, because I, I, I don't, I was telling them before, I, I don't, I don't know Kierkegaard from Colonel Sanders, but uh, I will try to keep up with these guys as best I can. As long uh, as you know some Zen Sunni philosophy, I think you'll be... You know, you'll be fine. Oh, who doesn't? <laughs> I got that reference. Um, but am I an Orthodox Herb? No, you should have. You should have said it like, "Are you? Are you? Or have you ever been? How is? How is <laughs> the? Like, how is like the the communist witch trials? How, how is it like that? Are you? Have you ever been a member of the Communist Party? A member of the? Herb are you Herb now, or have you ever? Are been? you now? Thank you. I knew I wasn't getting it right. I'm not even good at uh playing as a as a witch hunter. Are you now, <laughs> or have you ever been an Orthodox Herbertian? I always love this story of how we do talk a little bit about Orson Welles in the book. He was involved with Jodorowsky's version and he, they approached him for Lynch's version and he flat turned it down flat. Years earlier in, in like the 40s, I think, or late 40s, there was a huge push to have Orson Welles run for Senate in uh, Minnesota. Okay. And uh, he didn't want to do it. And then the, the person who wound up winning was uh, McCarthy. Ah, okay. <laughs> and, okay. And, and, and he, he's, he's, he told Peter Bogdanovich, imagine having that on your conscience. I'm just thinking about uh, when you said Minnesota, I was thinking about um, Jesse Ventura, right? So that obviously mm -hmm. not the same era or the same about, position, but I was thinking about the guy from um, SNL that did Stuart Smalley. Al Franken. Yeah, Al, Al Franken. Franken. Right. Yeah. I ran into him. This is a true story. I ran into Al Franken at a uh, in the bathroom at the 2000 presidential debates. Don't ask for elaboration, but yeah, I, 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 shook, his, I shook his hand and uh, I was like, I, I saw Stuart saves his family in the theater. And he's like, wow, in the theater. 
Oh, that's nice. But we've already gone down a huge. No, you asked me, am I an Orthodox Herbertian? No, not absolutely not. I've only read uh, the first two books. I only just read Dune Messiah recently. For me, it's all about the Lynch movie. That is also, in a way, how I got through writing this book. Because, you know, if, if listeners don't know, this is a 560-page <laughs> joker. That's, yeah, that's devoted, yeah. Uh, you know, pretty much entirely to David Lynch's Dune. The way I got through it was I said, you know, you're not interested in the books. You're not interested <laughs> in the miniseries or the Villeneuve movie or the you right. know any of that. Like, all that stuff is peripheral. It's about David Lynch's Dune. So just focus on that. You know, I'm not even – I wasn't even necessarily focused on Lynch's other movies. This was enough. You do give a nice run-up through Lynch's Rise to Stardom, right? I mean, like, you do mm-hmm. kind of give a nice, quick – background for the development of Racerhead, his his you know his schooling the lag in time of and even making your Racerhead, and obviously uh, the elephant man stuff like that you do a nice job of, of at least building up to getting the dune script in front of him or something like that or getting not the dune script but you know getting the uh, opportunity you build him up at least to that far thank you yeah and i mean and a lot of that is of course, because like I think it was just whatever I thought readers needed to know to have context for what happened on Dune. Because like you know, obviously, what happened on Elephant Man comes into play. What happened on Eraserhead right. comes into play. Right. You know, and and there's a lot of the same people who were involved in those films who came in. You know, so it's like we talk about lots of other movies and lots of other. There's lots of. Uh, I learned about a lot of the the actors' other movies, the ones that got cast, and some that didn't. I learned a lot about their. I guess it's stuff I could have found out looking at their IMDb page, but it was much better to just like see it presented to me. It's like, oh, okay, that's why she would have been considered for the part. Or this is like those kind of things, like reading about the cast and their background was was fascinating too. Yeah. So yeah, it is a wealth of knowledge in you. You can't really compress it like David Lynch's Dune. You can't can't do it a disservice (laughs) and and, and excise uh, more. The third act, yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. No, I, I think, third, I, yeah. There are the second acts in American life is the <laughs> Fitzgerald quote. There's no third act in Dune. Yeah. I, I just rewatched it again last night. And I was just like, I was shocked at how it's literally just squeezed, squeezed in oh, the last 45 minutes. Even the timing of the delivery of the dialogue feels a little, maybe it's part of the editing, but it feels, have you ever like, woken up out of a nap and then time seems to be like like just moving a little bit faster perceptually and, and you're kind of still like everything feels a little rushed I'm not saying like the actors did it or something but it's it's almost like um you can tell it's the pace is for such a sprawling mind-blowing bonkers movie it does feel like it's tr- it's throwing almost too much at you at once when you've watched the movie as many times as I have, you come to kind of appreciate that a little bit because it's like right. it, it, there's definitely there's definitely no filler in there. There's de- right. <laughs> definitely no like, OK, let's let's pause and, you know, really like make you make, you know, it's like the first hour and change is paced very well. It is. Yeah, absolutely. And and then, yeah. And then it just starts to go like, you know, balls to the wall, as mm-hmm. Kyle says in the book. You know, <laughs> it's like it's, it's like uh, I think it's an interesting way to digest the story. Is it the most efficient way to to experience it? I don't think so. But like, it's David Lynch's Dune, and it it is what it is. And for me, the the key to appreciating the movie is to love what's there and not 
you know, not so much what's not there. I would actually be curious about your opinions of Dune Messiah. And this can even lead into the first legitimate mm -hmm. question because, okay, so I saw the the TV cut when I was like six years old and it blew my mind. And then I later on ended up reading the books. I want to say I was like either junior high or freshman or sophomore in high school. And so I read Dune, Dune Messiah, Children of Dune. And then I kind of, I never could get through God Emperor until a few years ago, actually. On my first read, I think just coming from the Lynch movie and having the more traditional kind of, I guess, what is it like hero's journey story, mm -hmm. you know, basically the, what the yeah. way that the Joseph Campbell. Is, yeah, yeah, precisely. Precisely. Right. So I had that expectation going into Messiah and then he completely undercuts it and there's very little action and it's all this sort of sulking, you know, slow moving <laughs> tragedy, which now I absolutely am obsessed with. I'm like Dune <laughs> Messiah has become my favorite in the entire book series, I think, at this point. I think you're absolutely right. I think I think Dune Messiah is a better book because it is a lot more focused the first book is sort of an ensemble the second book is very much paul's story and i think that the, the stuff that he's dealing with and yeah as you say as you say like you know that 12 years later is definitely not and they lived happily ever after it is a huge sort of punch to the gut if you perceived the uh, ending of the first book to be triumphant which it really isn't supposed to be because I think even at the end of the book, Paul's kind of like, oh, God, what have I done? And he's already kind of being swept up in right. something that's bigger than him. What makes Doom a scientist? Yeah, it's like it's very static. It's very, it, you know, there's not a lot of action. There's not a lot of, you know, battle scenes and all the, you know, the the space opera tropes. But um, what you do get is you get this uh, sort of psychological one-upsmanship gamesmanship where it's like you know it's like i'm 17 steps ahead of you oh well i'm 19 steps ahead of you oh well, i'm 27 steps ahead this five-dimensional chess that's happening between you know the, the spacing guild and paul and and Cytale and all those characters you know and it's it's really fascinating and it would have been really interesting too to see what david would have done with that as well i think it would have been much more in his wheelhouse totally yeah. As far as the potential, the trilogy for Villanueva would be, I'm not very confident in um, Jason Momoa's ability to pull off Zen Sunni Mentat very well, or just the movie itself. I feel like, how do you make that? That's not a blockbuster style movie. So I don't know. How well, well, there's that there's work. that one moment in Dune Messiah where he's with Alia and he's like, that's not why I'm dangerous. And then he kisses her. Oh my God, that'd be like a show-stopping moment for Jason Momoa. Tell us about your first experience with this film. Because mm -hmm. like I said, this is something that really just blew my mind and I've been obsessed with ever since. Well, so. this is also the kind of origin story we usually ask our guests. So this mm -hmm. is kind right. of, yeah, yeah. you know, usually the occasion is, is a book or something they've written or like a field of expertise or, you know, something they've dedicated their lives to. So this is kind of like, tell us your origin story about you know, uh, not just, I'm kind of piggybacking off of, of Coop here, your first reactions to Lynch's Dune, but also how perhaps it's sprawled into this passion for writing the, the, book, <laughs> the present book. Well, it, you know, and it's funny because it's like, you know, me and Dune, you know, Dune has not been a huge obsession from the jump. It was more like an earwig that crawled in 
to my yeah. ear and laid its eggs and slowly, you know, grew. But my dad was obsessed with the books, not okay. with the movie. I don't I don't even know if he saw the movie. I think he was very dismissive of it. But like the, he was in love with the books, you know, hardly encouraged me to read them. And what I did was I taped the movie off of Sci-Fi Channel. I later realized it was I taped the Alan Smithy version, the extended mm-hmm. cut for TV because it was long. It was like four hours long. And um, and I was kind of watching the movie in spurts and then reading the book in spurts. So I did it them both concurrently. That was an interesting way to read the book and to watch the movie because if you've seen the movie, it's very true to the book. You know, it's it's a very, in some cases, literal translation, you know, except for the places where, you know, it diverges like the whole point of the book. But um, <laughs> it felt very dense. It felt very Shakespearean. It definitely was not what I was used to with things like, you know, Star Wars and stuff like that. But I mean, but at the time I was also, I think I was like 11 or 12. I was also obsessed with Blade Runner. So Blade Runner is a much more simpler film, you know, to understand for a teenager or tween or whatever. But um, I still appreciated that kind of dark, kind of European aesthetic. And was also very tickled by the use of the voiceovers for the internal monologues. There's a comic book store here in Brooklyn called Anyone Comics, and I was talking to the owner about Dune, and and he's like, oh, Dune is the most comic book movie ever made. All the thought bubbles that are always in comic books are in the movie. And I'm like, yeah, that's that's really true. It's a strange movie. It's not Star Wars. It's, you know, it's its own thing. And I think um, I could always tell it was a kind of a compromised film that it, it didn't flow quite right in whatever version you watch. I definitely have a preference for the theatrical cut just because I think it moves better. It is actually David's cut. I had been very sort of snarky about it at points in my life. And then when I embarked on doing this book, like the deeper I dug into it, the more just incredible detail and nuance I found. And also the fact that like I've been, I've been a movie journalist for like 18 years or something. I've watched the blockbuster go from something that was already pretty dumbed down to mm. just just something that is like a tailored object that's had all of the corners, you know, removed with a belt sander. All these movies are so homogenous and, you know, four quadrants. This is, everything has to be for everybody. And to look at a movie like Dune now, even in its heavily compromised state, you're like, wow, how did this, how did this movie get through this system? How did mm. all this weirdness and all this, you know, all of the these Lynchian fetishes and, and removing nipples and <laughs> and then all, all this stuff, how did how did this get through? This is amazing. In that sense, I think I think that's why you saw a lot of people who had never seen the film before, like when the Villeneuve one came out, I think a lot of people watched the Villeneuve one and then they watched the Lynch one and they're like, oh my God, like this Lynch movie is way crazier than the the Villeneuve one. Because Villeneuve's whole mission statement was, I'm going to make the most accessible version of this story. And Lynch's the whole thing was, I want to em- embrace the strangeness. I want to embrace the foreign feeling of being thrown 10,000 years into the future in media res. Right. This also might be a good time to talk a little bit about the several different cuts of the film since, like you said, the TV cut is the first exposure that we both had to the the film itself. I didn't watch the theatrical until I was like 
in middle school or something like that. That's probably what actually got me to go back and read the books, I think, if I remember correctly. I mean, yeah, you said it was a runtime of like four hours versus what Dune's cut or Lynch's cut. Yeah, I think they two hours and 17 minutes or I can't remember what channel it 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 aired on, but it was like a two part, two hour. Like it was long as hell. I do remember that specifically. It was like super long when I was a kid, you know, in particular, you know, four hours when you're a kid feels way different than it does now. But even so. Yeah, there are these wildly different cuts. I mean, the thing, for some reason, there's this perception that David took his name off the movie. That's not specifically true. Like he took his name off of the television cut because he actually wanted to be involved in that, but they didn't want to pay him anything or put any real money into finishing effects and things like that. So he walked away. It was just another kind of painful epilogue to what was already a painful experience for him. So yeah, so he took his name off the TV cut and it's understandable because the TV cut is an abomination. It's It's got scenes in it that they didn't want to pay for the effects, so they would just take effects from the end and put them at the beginning to patch holes. You know, there's some scenes that have shots from five different scenes in them. It's very difficult to watch if you're kind of aware of theatrical cut is smooth. There's some stuff that looks cheap, but it it, it doesn't go to that extent yeah. of sloppiness, you know, and sloppy storytelling. And, you know, there are whole scenes that are out of order from the way Lynch intended. And that's why I always tell people, you know, if you're going to watch the movie, watch the Spice Diver edit, which is the fan edit that a guy uh, did. He spent something like 10 years or or something just very wow. painstakingly going through and not only using scenes from the TV cut, but using deleted scenes from the DVD, in some cases going in and fixing effects and adding in the blue and blue eyes and stuff like that. Just like taking way more care than Universal ever did. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, and he, he removes the make it rain ending <laughs> and he, he does something closer to, I think, the ending that Lynch had intended. And we can talk about the ending at the end of the discussion today. In another podcast, you were discussing a lot of people like the art direction and the costuming from the Lynch version. That's kind of where my love or passion for the film really is directed. Is there something like that for you that kind of stands out? A performance, set design, music, whatever, is there something that kind of gets under your skin? Certainly the costumes. I think Bob Ringwood's costumes are incredible. You know, one of the things we talk about in the book, because because Ringwood was you know kind enough to participate, and right. he doesn't do a lot of interviews now. He's retired. He went on to do Tim Burton's Batman, and he also uncredited did the costumes for the first X Men movie. And those are both like seminal Keystone movies, and you know the modern superhero films. And uh, if you look at the Dune costume, you know there is a direct lineage from the dune costume to the batman costume to the x-men costumes in a way it's it is like the prototype for the modern day superhero movie you know because it was the first time you saw like a suit with like muscles built into it and had that rubbery fetishy look to it that's kind of funny because i'm very much an x-men purist and i hate the adaptations that have been made so far Particularly the costumes, especially in the first X-Men. Like, so that's hilarious because I love 
the guildsman i think in particular is like the guildsman costuming is my touchstone for my current i'm kind of a i'm into fashion quite a bit so they are very much my uh touchstone for my kind of look my goth space wizard look i so, call it so you need some used body bags is that what exactly you're right okay yeah, Ringwood did use body bags for the guildsmen. That's absolutely true. Somebody was like, there's a lot of debate in the Dune community about whether or not that's true. Like, I mean, like they didn't blink. They're like, yeah, they're body bags. They're used body bags. It's like we didn't tell anybody yeah, what they were. used body bags. So. <laughs> G- gently, yeah. gently used. <laughs> right? I mean, Certified that, pre-owned CPO. Yeah, that was that was a nice little detail that I saw. I think you may have written used in, in all caps. This is what I wore to like the lint, not the lynch, the villain wave. That's pretty cool. This is my spacing guild kind of vibe. So, do, so you made this? It's basically stuff that I bought, separate uh-huh. pieces. This hoodie is like one of my favorite hoodies because it has kind of this cowl esque. This part here kind of stands up like a cowl. This reminds me of the second stage guild. Yeah, movie. yeah. And if, and if listeners don't know, like in in the movie, if you watch the movie, there's different stages of the the guildsman there's the first stage navigator which is just like a guy although at a later point in the movie he starts to have like cracks in his head <laughs> he's, he's already mutating yeah that's from then, spice withdrawal i think is why he starts to ooze and then the second stage was supposed to be kind of like almost like an elephant man looking thing but instead they didn't have the money for it so they just put guys in like black hoods like so you couldn't see totally, their yeah. their lumpy faces and then the third stage is what you see in the floating in the tank. I guess that his name is Edric. Obviously, the steel suits also are incredible. I prefer the Lynch design a thousand times better than the uh, Villain Wave movie. But not every comparison is that way, right? I think some of the costuming in the Lynch film, the Sardaukar, for example, those are very like lazy. They're kind of like hazmat suit, baggy hazmat suits. Mm-hmm. With like the green lighting inside of the little face window. Mm-hmm. And then the Harkonnen outfits are also, aside from like Fade and Re- even the Fade and Raban costume is a little bit bad. Now, the Barons is fantastic, I think, mm-hmm. in the Lynch. but So it's kind of uneven, but some of them are amazing. Some of Irulan's dresses in particular are probably, these would be like $50,000 dresses. They're couture level design and so forth. A lot absolutely, of the ones that she yeah. has with like the ve- the like veil across the face. I absolutely agree with that. Yeah, it's um, what you're talking about with the um, Baron's costume. I mean, the, the Baron's costume is made out of colostomy bag rubber. Everything had to have kind of an eerie connotation, you know, when it came to you know stuff like the the guildsman and the and the Baron. And he worked with some guy who made prosthetic eyes to make that Baron costume and it weighed a ton because Kenneth McMillan wanted it to, he wanted to weigh as much as the Baron was supposed <laughs> to weigh. <laughs> and, uh, and, and it had like a catheter in it so he could pee and he couldn't right. walk in it. He had to be carted around everywhere. He's not supposed it. to walk. He's supposed to fly around. Right. You know, like, uh, yeah, but I mean like offsets, you know, I I was like, know. Oh my God. Like, can you imagine just in that all day? Insane. Yeah. Yeah. By the way, that is not entirely unusual. We were talking about like superhero costumes and things like yeah. that. Like I know like years ago I was on the set of uh, Tron Legacy and I remember the actors could not sit down. 
<laughs> to just lean against pillars and stuff <laughs> like they, like those co- like all these costumes are extremely uncomfortable and constrictive you know just ki- kind of that's the norm i can't imagine i remember the tale from the book about the extras having to wear the still suits in the sonoran desert basically and mm-hmm. there uh there's burning tires and they added sulfur to the mix as well, can you imagine the cancer those people were exposed to? Those poor, Whoa. like extras that probably got like ten bucks a day or something insane. It's unreal. Yeah, like the, the what they had to endure there, and yeah, and they, and they talk about uh, at one point there were like hundreds of these guys in still suits running down a hill, and the, and to get them to run down the hill, they put a guy with a jug of water at the bottom. Ah. <laughs> <laughs> which is a little sadistic that's almost two on the nose uh, yeah it sounds like it was not the most fun movie to make sometimes like especially the conditions at churubusco studios in mexico city you know it was a very rundown old facility at that time you know i think it was on the verge of almost closing at one point prior to them coming in they had like you know, they had to add phone phone lines and plumbing and, you know, like like everything had to be put in. And a lot of times the electricity would go out. So they had to use generators. It just sounded like it was a very, you know, hard movie to make. And I know that's one of the reasons why Ridley Scott bowed out of making it because he, he went to that studio and he was like, no. <laughs> <laughs> and Lynch was probably just too new on the scene. Elephant Man was really the only full-on Hollywood picture. Eraserhead, you know, I think he did when he was at AFI at the conservatory and got a grant or something. That's right. Yeah, Eraserhead was a four-year process where he was building all the sets inside of a barn at Greystone Manor, which is on the AFI campus. And yeah, it, it, it just lasted for years and years and years. And People stuck with David because they, you know, they liked the movie, you know, they thought the movie was going to be good. And then it became a success on kind of its own metric as like a midnight cult movie. Yeah. And then Elephant Man is like almost the total opposite. It's like a a prestigious Oscar caliber biopic. So you had these two movies that he'd done that were both successful in their own way. And, you know, people could kind of read into that whatever they wanted. Like, oh, yeah, you could do Star Wars. You could do this. (laughs) You could do this. You could do do Return of the Jedi. Yeah, it's like, yeah, and in hindsight, you look back, you're like, oh, no, David doesn't do that. (laughs) I think Dune was an interesting sort of, you know, compromise in the sense that, you know, yes, it it, it was a big blockbuster, you know, sci-fi epic. Yes, it did have a merchandising, you know, component to it. And, it you know, it was a, you know, it was a big franchise. On the other hand, it was an opportunity for Lynch to do the kind of, you know, world building that he's so great at that he later went on to do and you know Twin Peaks which is like it's Twin Peaks is like its own Star Trekian universe right yeah <laughs> and uh yeah and I, and I think you know yeah had he gone on to do the two other dune pictures he was contracted to do I, I think he he would have you know really done a bang up job expanding the world you know cinematically on the reason Lynch was, was such a great choice for this movie is because he's he's so good at world building and he's so good at relaying ideas visually. What some people would take two or three scenes to do, he can do with a with just one kind of interesting image. Like for example, the um, in the scene where Paul is attacked by the hunter seeker, the hunter seeker emerges 
from a panel on his bed that has an image of a lion. If you remember from the beginning in the emperor's throne room, the emperor has two golden lions by him. So it's a, that kind of connection is the kind of stuff that Lynch is so great at. The golden lion throne is the imperial throne too for House Carino. Are you a big Lynch fan just generally speaking or does the Dune film have a particular place in your heart or what's your relationship to the kind of corpus of Lynch's film work? That's an interesting question because you would think that I would be like the number one Lynch fan of the universe, but I'm I'm really not. A lot of his films I watched for the first time because I was writing this book. Like I watched Eraserhead okay. for the first time. I'd wanted to see Eraserhead. It's not that I didn't want to see it. It's just I kind of knew about it tangentially, right. yeah. you know, but like, yeah, I actually sat down and watched it. And, you know, I have two children. So to me, <laughs> It wasn't weird at all. It it was like, this is a documentary. This is like, you know, this is a movie about parental anxiety from a reluctant father. You know, and I completely jived with that. And I was like, I was like, there's nothing strange about this movie at all. Because it, it, you know, it is how you feel. You're terrified all the time. You know, like any parent in the world has a Saw movie going on in their head every day. (laughs) And I am no different. I love Eraserhead. I like Blue Velvet. Some of the other films I find challenging, like, you know, Mulholland Drive is is a very challenging movie. I appreciate Twin Peaks, but it, it's not my cup of tea necessarily. I mean, it's like, I do tend to gravitate towards filmmakers who have a distinct visual style and, you know, do, do the kind of dreamy, surrealistic stuff. But they tend to be more people like, um, like Terry Gilliam or Jean-Pierre Genet you know, and, and, or Tim Burton. And it's like the thing that like all those guys have in common is like they're all cartoonists. So they come from a cartooning background and David Lynch comes from a fine art background. So I think that's like kind of where there's a little bit of a something obstructing my being able to appreciate some of his stuff. Not all of it. I, I, I like many of his films, but yeah, but like he's, uh, I think he himself is, the thing that I became obsessed with when I was writing the book, just him as a as a character kind of, right. you know, because yeah, yeah. he has this kind of cult of personality right. around him. What do you guys think of Lynch? I mean, he has that kind of mad scientist vibe a little bit, but right. I'm actually, like you, I'm not a huge fan of his overall work. When I first saw Mulholland Drive in something like 2001, I was like, I was completely dumbfounded. I didn't know what the fuck. I was like, what the fuck did I just watch? What the fuck mm-hmm. was this? Um, yeah. So I appreciate some aspects of it. Like there are some really incredible moments in some of the films that are, he is the master of this kind of almost Hitchcockian sort of jump scare or like building the dramatic mm-hmm. tension. You know, I'm thinking about the diner scene in Mulholland Drive, for example, or the Robert Blake scene at the party in, what is it? Lost Highway, mm-hmm. where he's like, call, you know, call your house right now. I'm there. That shit was legitimately some of the creepiest, scariest shit I've ever seen in a movie. And that's still whatever his name is in the book or movie, rather, creeps me the fuck out. Twin Peaks is probably, aside from Dune, my favorite thing. But I think some of that is nostalgia because I watched the original Twin Peaks, you know, when it aired in like 90, 91, 92. You know, I was a kid, so I didn't, I was like 10 years old. So I probably had no clue what the fuck was going on. I prefer the fire walk with me weirdly even though i i know like the like people love the quirkiness of twin peaks but like i i, I enjoyed 
the kind of you know de- you know delving into the underbelly that he goes in and the the real dark dark places that that movie goes. I thought that was I think it's really interesting. And that one is you know the the Twin Peaks series is kind of a melding of Lynch and Mark Frost. Fire Walk with Me is pure Lynch and and there are a lot of references to Dune in the, the Twin Peaks universe. You know, you got the the signet ring, the is it the fireman's fortress is a lot like the the fortress that the Atreides fortress in the Dune movie. There's a lot of interesting parallels. There's even like a I think at one point Agent Cooper your namesake. Agent Cooper does a kind of a version of the litany of against fear as Agent Cooper, you know, and uh, and in all the all the cases, you know, whether it was Dune, Blue Velvet, Twin Peaks, Kyle McLaughlin is absolutely the stand-in for Lynch. Certainly in more in Blue Velvet and Twin Peaks for the mannerisms and the way he speaks, but even in Dune, you know, in terms of the young man going through uh, oh, a right, spiritual yeah. journey and, you know, having that spiritual awakening. I think that was very autobiographical for David. I think I mentioned this in our DMs, but I've often wondered what it means that my name is Cooper Dale Cherry and it's Agent Dale Cooper who loves cherry pie. There's something <laughs> fucked up about that. I don't, there's some kind of weird, <laughs> uh, something going on strange there. But Taylor, what you're kind of more of a, lynch fan would you say right or am i putting words I mean, in your mouth i mean i'm, I'm probably like uh, on the same level as you coop in terms of where my i mean you, you mentioned lost highway you mentioned um i mean i I, drive, I, yeah. I i have a soft spot for blue velvet that one that's one of my favorite lynch films i do have a soft spot for twin peaks even though season two i think it's regrettable that lynch wasn't as involved season one right because season one is like those six episodes which really catapult the narrative and get you hooked and then season two starts off really well but then in the middle it kind of you can tell they abc is like oh well we'll green light you for 24 episodes or some shit i forget what it's what it is it's like 20 something and so a lot of those episodes are like the James episodes where everybody's like i don't give a fuck about this guy like (laughs) cut that shit down you know, and and so Lynch like comes back towards the the end to quote unquote save the the series and be the hero and and it does end I think in a way that not to say season two is all bad obviously not it's just it does at least end with that kind of iconic image you know and I think obviously it's a flawed show but I also agree with you Max that uh, Fire Walk with Me if you watch like season one two and then watch fire walk with me i think that prepares you for the return yeah oh totally right Mm -hmm. i mean that kind of repairs you for how weird the fucking return is compared to the majority yeah twin peaks yes it's weird but you could it was still made for abc for a you know a prime time prime time audience yeah so it's Mm -hmm. still it's still made with with an audience in mind and so I think that that's both good and bad because that constriction also allows for some of the more surreal moments to pop. Firewalk with me is like we're getting the Lynchian id, right? We're <laughs> for the most part, or at least getting a little bit more of it. Um, and so that I think if you watch season one, two, and then go straight into the return, 
I don't know if you're necessarily ready for the surreal to to be because what the return was on showtime so that's yeah. like you know you gotta you gotta pay that's more a, of a prestige that's a, more of a prestige style subscription based model right so you know you're going to he's obviously allowed more freedom and i think that the the movie allows you to get in that more lynchian vein one of the reasons why the return is what it is is and this is just my theory but i think that you know, he hadn't made anything in about 10 years when he did The Return in terms of movies or TV. And um, I, I think he knew his his days were kind of numbered in terms of like being able to finance the kind of stuff that he does. So like I think originally the order was for nine episodes and he demanded it be 18 episodes. And there was a whole negotiation around that. And I think the reason he expanded it from nine to 18 was because he just wanted to do every idea he had left. <laughs> he just wanted to do, he had a lot in him and he wanted to get it out. And this was going to be the only viable, you know, platforms, his one franchise that uh, still had value. So. It nicely coincided more or less with the, the 25 years mm -hmm. prophecy in the, what in the, was it the, the Black Lodge or whatever, where Laura mm -hmm. Palmer's or her doppelganger, whatever. I think that that's, that really does tie the room together. Um, <laughs> yeah. But, but, in, but, in terms of, but in terms of both of you, I, I don't necessarily consider Lynch to be like on the top of my list. You know, I mean, I remember just a couple of nights ago for the show, I put on Lynch's Dune again. And my wife's kind of sitting there and, <laughs> and she's just like, you know, you showed this to me a couple of years ago. What the fuck? <laughs> what the, what is this? And then the next day, because she had seen part one, the Villeneuve put that on and, and she's like, Oh my God, this is so much better. And I get that. I, I get that, that mindset where it's like, okay, you know, Lynch isn't for her. She's not even that gung ho about fucking twin peaks. She finds it quirky and interesting, but even for her, she's like, eh, you know, come on. You know, yeah, it just, I, it just depends on what you, what's your threshold. Right. But awareness. Know, the singularity of Lynch's Dune, and I really do think you, if you go into it with the mindset of what it's going to be, and you have a nice idea of it, you can immerse yourself. But I do think, especially now, what, 40 years later or so, you know, if you don't have that, that background, don't know what you're getting into, if it comes on, there might be that, that kind of wall that's going to ward you off and keep you from enjoying it for what it is and maybe there was that at the at the very beginning maybe that's why it was panned so well right that you had to get sucked in by the world building the costumes like you know Cooper saying uh, the the music you had to get sucked into that world as flawed as it may be or you know you're left kind of just standing uh, you know, uh, on the side of the road, just looking in at this, you know, fever dream, right? <laughs> right it yeah, kind of, yeah, yeah. which is which is a good way to describe something like Mulholland Drive. It's kind of a fever dream, right? I mean, like, yeah, totally, yeah. You either you either go along for the sure. ride, or you're <laughs> or you're just like, let me out, come on. Not to put everything on Lynch either. I mean, because I think 
Right. Some of it has to do with the accessibility of Herbert's work as well. Mm-hmm. You know, like this is very difficult material to make palatable for a mass audience, which a film of this size needs to survive. It needs to be easily understandable. And that's a difficult, you know, line to toe, you know, especially a movie I like to compare it to is like Tim Burton's Batman. If you watch Tim Burton's Batman is just as messy and nonsensical and, you know, strange and, and really not, true to the source material you know it's like any criticism you can levy at dune you can levy at batman the difference is batman is a very accessible idea it's a very simple idea you know it's very iconic and easy to understand whereas dune is it is shakespearean tragedy and it's very complex and there's a lot of nuance to it i think some of that falls on herbert as well Absolutely. I was just reading the other day in the Dune subreddit, which I'm somewhat active in, that somebody was kind of they were they were complaining about how the way that Herbert writes, as opposed to someone like Tolkien, maybe this is what I love about Herbert's writing. It definitely can be very clunky. He has like some goofy stuff in there, but a lot of the ideas are really fantastic. Tolkien like describes everything. Herbert oftentimes I feel like he leaves a lot of space for the reader to fill in the specific yeah. specific details. Like he gives you just enough kind of scaffolding to project your imagination on. And I think he is great in a sense at kind of this weird world building that sometimes does absolutely get clunky. You can say the same thing about Tolkien, man. Like you flip open Tolkien to a random page. Don't tell your roommate. I said this a huge fan, but you turn to a random page and you probably, you've got like a, you've got a song that's in the middle of the narrative and right like you said like they just have totally different styles and but he's much more descriptive i think and so would someone like you know george rr R. martin is a lot more actually describing the scenery whereas herbert is a lot more uh like i said he kind of gives you an image maybe but he doesn't like go into the specifics of like you know he may say the uh, urine and feces are processed in the thigh pads, but he's not like going into the, the intricacies of how the actual still suit works. I mean, description yeah. can get to the point of gluttony and, and it can become pornographic. I'm just saying it's a different thing, but you're right. And I do think trying to do the first book, that arc, because so much of it is the world building. And this is what we said at the beginning, you know, you guys were laying out that first half of the movie of Lynch's Dune seems to go smooth yeah and and seems to have a nice pace and seems to set the stage but to a certain extent if they had done it in two installments perhaps they could have set up the arc maybe it would have ended somewhere somewhere near where villanoves does right where he gets to become he starts to become the the leader of the fremen first of all uh, this is something i cut out from my book but uh, tolkien hated dune Oh, yeah, I heard that. Too. <laughs> I'm not surprised. <laughs> oh, yeah, he, he wrote a letter to a friend being like, oh, I hate this book. <laughs> there is a certain, you know, there's a certain clunkiness to Tolkien. I mean, the thing I don't like about Tolkien is that everybody speaks in the same way. Everybody speaks like Tolkien. Not a lot of variation with the characters. You know, with Dune, like the thing that was important, I think, to Herbert was more the ideas and... um rather than the pulpiness and the adventure of it all. Like that's all kind of background for him because he's he's telling the story about how a well-meaning young man can, becomes a monster. 
like a true monster. You know, he's a reluctant monster, but doesn't matter because like, what does he do? Like he kills, what do they say? Like 64 billion people. Those are some numbers, man. Yeah, he's like looking <laughs> at uh, Genghis Khan and Hitler and Dune Messiah and be like, these are rookie numbers. Lightweights. <laughs> yeah, and, and and yeah, and so much of it is just like, you know, yeah, like he's caught up in this machine around him and he really does he doesn't even like want to be Maudive anymore. You know, Lynch... I think he sort of tiptoed around that. Like, I think they, they, he dipped he dipped his toe into the waters of that a little bit because there is a deleted scene where Paul is having a dream about his terrible purpose. And I know that there were drafts of the script he wrote where it, like it ended with like an ocean of blood where they were, le- you know, leaning a little more into what Herbert intended. And But I, I don't know whether it was a mandate from the De Laurentiis's or universal, you know, or or just that, like they figured it was simpler to just do the Joseph Campbell hero's journey type thing and and make him a real messiah, and make him a hero, you know. But that's what they did, and that's the movie, and it has his name on it. So we have to reckon with that, you know. You can't say, oh, but he really meant to do this. No, we have to deal with what's in front of us, and um, yeah, and and what is in front of us is, you know, you have you have Herbert who is, you know, a guy who is, you know, he, he wrote for politi- he wrote speeches for politicians, he was involved in politics, very mistrusting of charismatic leaders. And the whole point to him was to show how a decent person can become a monster. And Lynch's version is about embracing the idea of, of Paul as a, a messiah. <coughs> And Paul is, you know, as a as a as a hero, and you know, as 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 somebody who is has this awakening within him, and you know, unleashes this reservoir of power from within to defeat his enemies, and yeah, and I think uh, in, in real life, Lynch was a follower of the Maharishi and of transcendental meditation, and that's something that you have to consider while you're watching it, whether that's what Lynch intended or not. Like that's the film he made. He made a film about a great charismatic leader that is key for me and i hope for other lynch fans now to understanding why dune is a david lynch movie david lynch can talk all day about how oh it wasn't the movie i wanted to make yada yada but it's like i I think it has so much of him in it you know like one of the things we talk about in the book is the you know the weirding modules and how the, the weirding modules are not in the book and what are the weirding modules they're a source of power that's activated by a word Okay, well, that's transcendental meditation. <laughs> transcendental meditation is you focus on a word, and you you know, and you and you clear your mind, and you you just repeat the mantra over and over in your mind, and and again, and you know, it's supposed to you know imbue you with you know serenity and power and whatever. These are the kind of things that nobody has really talked about. I think prior to this, because I think because Lynch was dismissive of the movie, and because most people have been dismissive of the movie. And I think it's it's something that, you know, if we really want to reconsider it, you have to grapple with these ideas that Lynch really imbued this with his philosophy and his point of view of the world. And uh, yeah, and I, I think that's uh, I think that's one of the, you know, a really good reason to revisit the film. I think what's actually interesting, and especially for Taylor and I and like the philosophy that we discuss heavily on the show you know, a lot of it I, I mentioned in the intro, right? The Institute for Revolutionary Semiotics. So that is getting into, I guess, I suppose, the material force of language, we might say. And we discuss a lot of psychoanalysis as well. 
And so this kind of blending of semiotics and psychoanalysis where words do impact the body, like words have an actual physical force that impacts the body and how the body reacts to words. So there is kind of this interesting like metaphorical thing going on here that kind of overlap. And maybe that's where my interest is derived from a little bit. I don't know, Taylor, if you want to digress a little bit. But I was just thinking about like Lacan, right? Because he talks about how the signifier, right? It marks the body or even inscription, I suppose, for Deleuze and Guattari. But like Lacan often talks about how the body is kind of the scission of the signifier, right? Like the body is kind of cut, like there's an actual physical impact involved in language. So I think that's kind of a cool, at least conceptually, right? Like, of course, book fans are probably going to be upset, but I think Lynch had a point in terms of he didn't want to have a bunch of karate fighting going out in the desert. That kind of would have looked a little bit stupid. I don't know how you would have made yeah. like the Prana Bindu training or fighting, what have you, look cinematic. To be fair, some of the fight scenes like with the Sardaukar you mentioned earlier are a little clunky. And oh, yeah, doing, they're very bad. Um, but I guess to tie together your point with Max's, I mean, in terms of the transcendental meditation and focusing on a word, I mean, so much of the powers that Paul gains from his mother, you know, the Bene Gesserit is sort of mastering the voice, right? And it, it does have these, these powers on on others and in the world, right? So we can, we can kind of, you can kind of see how that's already materialized now with with Lynch in terms of the transcendental meditation. And sort of that kind of focus on, I mean, I, I suppose it, it it goes with what we've discussed, right? His, if we want to, for lack of a better word, his his use of dream imagery and surrealism, even though it may not have shown up in like the final stage, right? Which is something you mentioned, Max, right? The the sort of the ending to the movie being. Well, oh, you mean you mean you mentioned another ending dipping into it being that river of blood, but also the the ending that you've uncovered in the storyboards, the mm -hmm. which, you, which you've called the transcendental ending, which I think is is interesting. I don't know yeah, what you right. you would call it. <laughs> right. that, I, mean, but, I mean, it's it's for people who haven't seen the video yet. It's been posted online. It's been on Den of Geek. I put together a video based um around um these storyboards that I uncovered. That were tossed out. There were special effects storyboards, and um, some of the shots from them did wind up in the movie. And those shots are in the video. But um, yeah, basically, it's to describe it in a nutshell: is it's Paul. We go into Paul's mind, kind of, and we see this eruption from space, this wave of light, and then from the light comes like a thousand small guild navigators. And they all like burrow into his face and his eyes. And and then Paul kind of vomits angels. <laughs> and the angels destroy the, the guild navigators. And then Paul transcends to this other, totally other level, you know, which has a lot of water imagery, a lot of faces. You see the face of Jessica. You see Alia as a fetus. At the end, you see the golden lotus which is a reference to a line from doom messiah where i think the character's name is barak baruch baruch yeah so baruch says you know that he thought that paul would be the one to make the golden flower 
bloom in the night. But of course, this is this is not just a golden flower. This is a golden lotus, you know. And then this is again, this is right. Lynch, you know, like this the yeah, the lotus. It's a very important image in transcendental meditation. You know, when you're doing transcendental meditation, you're in the lotus position. You know, come on, that's the ending that I posted. You know, it's not the ending that's in the movie. You know, we have to consider the ending that's that they did too. But it, it is interesting to consider this alternative because it just speaks even more to what Lynch had intended. And it is, of course, loaded with Boonwellian symbolism. And yeah, and it, it's I, I think it's a really trippy, almost 2001 Space Odyssey oh, yeah, right. style that's very true. ending. What did, you, what did you guys think of that video? I love it, actually. I mean, I think that's, see, that's the kind of weird shit that I wanted I love the Hodorowski stuff is a little bit like too, that was too campy, I think for me, but like some of it where he talks about, you know, I think in Jodorowsky's Dune, he says he has a quote. It's like, I want to make a movie that's going to impact people the way that taking LSD does, but without Ooh. taking LSD. And that has always been, I think as a, someone who at one point had aspirations to be a filmmaker, that would be like my guiding light for making a film is I want to make a film that is as close to the psychedelic experience as possible. So I love this very surreal imagery. And I mean, the way that a lot of the surreal imagery is folding space by the guild navigators, etc. Whenever Paul does take the water of life and he has those visions, Lynch does a fairly serviceable job of trying to sh display like this kind of otherworldly kind of trippy shit that I love and would have, I want, this is kind of something I was hoping that would be touched upon a little bit better in the in the new movie no and a lot of people have pointed that out to me actually that they wish there was more of that weirdness that there was more of that when a lot of people read the book of dune so many people said the same thing oh i got like 60 pages in and then i had to go back and start again because <laughs> it finally clicked and it throws you into this world and you kind of don't know what to make of it because it has its own terminologies its own sociologies that are different from ours it is cool that you mentioned Jodorowsky also because, you know, yeah, because this ending could have just as easily been made by Jodorowsky. Jodo and Lynch are both sort of the children of Boonwell. And, uh, you know, that they, they, you know, they, they're both grand, you know, surrealists in their own way. Just to continue, I suppose the thread you know we're on as far as the transcendental stuff and the mm -hmm. philosophy stuff I was mentioning and psychoanalysis, and you might not even be aware of this, Max, but Herbert himself met this couple, Ralph and Irene Slattery, who I think Irene was a Jungian psychoanalyst, and then her husband Ralph was trained as a Freudian. So Frank met this couple, and they kind of exposed him to those ideas and a lot of that obviously you know the joseph campbell stuff is certainly very much in um conversation with Jung, right for example but a lot of that and you know there's other you know heidegger gets involved you know he gets some exposure to philosophy so i think these ideas are definitely like in frank's work and this is something that i am personally working to write a book on this kind of huge like tome about these strange philosophical connections within within dune and the series i mean what you're talking about too is just sort of the archetypes of storytelling i have read a little bit about 
the reason why we crave like a three act structure. You know, it's like if you went to write a script and you didn't know about three act structure, you probably would have a three act structure anyway, because that is the way we like to process stories. And that goes into whatever, yeah, Jungian archetypes, you know, just things that are just, you know, in our lizard brain that we react to. I hadn't ever really thought about it like that. I'm glad you posed it that way because I think there's kind of an interesting, I guess, connection to, this is kind of going into the weeds a bit, but like Hegel's dialectic is, what is it? Synthesis, antithesis. I'm Thesis, antithesis, synthesis. Yeah, right, yeah. yeah. So I think there you're maybe right there as far as like, you know, in terms of how you structure the screenplay, right? There's like the inciting incident, like there's the there's the problem that gets encountered, right? Like there's the challenge, I suppose, to be quick and dirty in this film. That's like the Duke's assassination, right, by the mm -hmm. Harkonnens. So that would be the kind of inciting incident that takes Paul into then he encounters the Fremen. That conflict sort of synthesizes into this ending that I guess, you know, making it rain and becoming the actual messiah would be sort of the synthesis in a certain sense of that. But that's, you know, that's being very reductive as far as Hegel is concerned. But I think that is maybe something interesting that I hadn't really considered as far as storytelling goes. Yeah, Taylor, what do, you, what do you think? Well, I was going to say the fourth term, the, the negativity. Is, yeah, exactly. Is, is where <laughs> we we see maybe that's uh, messiah right <laughs> paul paul become the preacher or whatever right so that's 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 the follow-up even if the caesar sparsely they're planted in in the original dune but it's it's not very latent but yeah i mean i i i can see what, what you're both talking about and um coop we may want to ask a little bit more about yeah the yeah interviews in the book we've talked about the well, so, I think I had a good. We were talking about yeah. Jodorowsky, we were talking about Jodorowsky's Dune, and Jodorowsky famously had gotten H.R. Uh, Geiger involved. Geiger obviously worked with Ridley Scott for Alien, and even though he and you talk about this in the book, Max. So Geiger wasn't directly involved with Lynch, but I think that in some capacity, some of the I don't know, maybe it's just like the art direction, like some of it kind of still sneaks in and i'm thinking about the staircase and you mm -hmm. even have a photo in the book a black and white still photo of the way that that was or it shows kind of the construction and i'm mm -hmm. going to pull up my email because i have i think this is just a magnet yeah. i mean look at that yeah. I mean, on caladan wow. yeah i mean to yeah. me that looks very much the kind of biomechanical this is like geiger-esque absolutely if you compare this to the derelict ship an alien, for example, you I think you can absolutely see the through line from Geiger. Do you think do you kind of see what I'm getting at? What do you think? Totally, no, that? totally. Yeah, I, I thought the same thing probably when I saw the movie. And, uh, you know, I, I think Geiger and Alien were such a seminal film at the time. You know, I think you see a lot of films trying to ape that look. You know, you, you can also see it in Life Force. You can see it in um, a lot of the alien ripoffs that came out like galaxy of terror and there were a lot of people sort of bite you know biting off giger and and there is a i think there was like a certain sense that like maybe the two lynch and giger were kind of 
riffing off each other because I think I know Lynch was very angry at Giger because he thought that the alien in um, specifically the baby alien in uh, oh yeah alien yeah, looks like the uh, baby from Eraserhead. Um, which maybe maybe and Giger didn't say anything to dis- discourage yeah. that. I do know that the when the art department was designing the film, they were trying to make it look different from any other science fiction thing. You know, certainly, you know, stuff like Star Wars or Two Thousand One, which Tony Masters also designed, would have been verboten. You know, the ships looking kit bashed or, you know, with lots of, right, yeah. you know, kind of extraneous ornamentation on them. You know, like all of the designs in Dune were honed to their kind of simplest form. You know, the ornithopter is just kind of like a diamond shape. The um, diamond, a diamond, which is a symbol that comes up again in Twin Peaks and, you know, is is definitely a Lynchian thing, you know, and like, yeah. And the other ships are the Harkonnen highliner or whatever is like, it's just these kind of ovals. It's all very simple stuff. And that is the hardest thing in design is to get things down to their simplest, most iconic form. Another thing they teach you in design is, is a really good design is recognizable in silhouette. And you can say that about probably most of the designs in Dune as well. So it's just an impeccably designed film from top to bottom. And that is one of the things that you can't, I don't, I don't think you could argue with it. Yeah. You know, like unless you're being like a super hyper contrarian, mm-hmm. you can't say Dune is not a beautiful movie. Very true. You talk about yeah. in the book as well how Lynch had this kind of notion that each planet should have its own elemental touchstone. And I can't remember them off the top of my head, but obviously I feel like maybe Caladan would have to be wood and then Arrakis stone. Steel. Yeah, right. Yeah, exactly. And then Golden Jade for... Titane. Yeah. Yeah. There you go. Just in case there's like a thing about whether or not I might be like thumping for transcendental meditation or something like that, I just <laughs> want to make it very clear like I'm not part of the organization of transcendental meditation. I'm mm-hmm. not like, I'm not part of uh, any of that. I, I, I practice it briefly on my own without any uh, guidance, just as research for the book. I did it for, did it for a couple of weeks and it was interesting. But yeah, like I'm, I'm, not, I'm not pro or anti. I'm just, I'm, I just think it, it is something that you need to reckon with to understand David Lynch's Dune the same way you would want to understand that Alfred Hitchcock is obsessed with blondes or <laughs> Christopher Nolan is obsessed with dead wives. You know, whatever. You know, kind of pick your, uh, you know, your directorial obsession. You know, Guillermo del Toro with clockwork. You know, every director has a kink or an obsession. And uh, or at least the good the good ones. I, I totem, yeah, yeah. It's kind of interesting. Since you mentioned the transcendental meditation, I don't know if you've seen the. I have to put this in the show notes. I'll put the links to the transcendental ending storyboarding and the Den of Geek in the show notes as well, both Thank for you. listeners and just so that you know. There's a conversation with Harry Dean Stanton and uh, David Lynch, and they're I forget the specific quote, but it's something about the self, and they're both like, "There is no self," and then they just kind of like laugh. I'll have to paste that in the in the show notes too but that was (laughs) i mean that is one of the reasons why i like david is he definitely has a sense of humor about stuff he's not like um if he is pretentious he's a funny pretentious there is just something lovable about him and for people who think that like his like you know gee golly 
you know, attitude <laughs> is somehow fake. I can tell you from personal experience, it's not. That's the way <laughs> that's really the way he is. He's like, um, uh, I don't want the movie to look like it's from the future. I want it to look like the <laughs> 1950s. Okay. <laughs> yeah. I mean, some of the sets, like I mentioned the staircase, but the wood sort of Baroque wood set whenever Mohim comes to test Paul in the Lynch film. I mean, that's one of my favorite visual moments where they're like, they're profiled in the frame and there's just this incredibly ornate wood in the background. I mean, just the lighting in that mm -hmm. scene. One of my favorite interviews that he did around the time it was released, he's like, he said something like, Dune is a nifty movie. <laughs> this is partly part of why i love it is because you know you watch a movie like um i think i think actually terry gilliam said this he said like if you watch 2001 a space odyssey it ends with a question you know you might not understand it but like you talk about it you try to dissect it you try to you know it makes you think and then you compare it to a movie like close encounters of the third kind which ends with an answer and it's a stupid answer it's uh little girls in uh, in alien costumes. So it's a little reductive, but I think it's true. I think, you know, yeah, there are some movies that that you can think about and there's others that are just, you know, they're just mental flaws. The set where Paul gives the long live the fighter speech, that scene or setting is just amazing. I don't know if, how many extras that was, that's a really interesting location, you know what I'm saying? Yeah. It's got the yeah. huge, like, the immensity of it is definitely communicated yeah. on screen in a way that makes it feel very believable that, you know, we're on this alien sort of cathedral-like place. I believe the word I use to describe that sequence is Reifenstahlian. <laughs> um, yeah, uh, very good. Excellent. Yeah, <laughs> and, uh, yeah, no, and and, and I mean... I think even Gene Siskel, when he saw it, he hated ah, the movie. Yeah. Uh, you know, when he, when he saw it, he's like, he's like, oh yeah, this has got, you know, Triumph of the Will all over it, and and it's like, yeah, and and like Star Wars, which also incorporated elements of that, and Close Encounters, you know, that kind of awe, that sense of awe, and 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 sense of you know mass, you know, th these these masses of people. You do have to reckon with that. Is it used ironically? Is it used literally? Is it just you know a tool? that now filmmakers have in their pocket in terms of the technical aspect of that scene. I believe it was, you know, several hundred extras in a, a portion of the set. And the rest was a uh, matte painting by uh, Albert Whitlock. I have to go back and look at that with like a very close eye and see if I can distinguish the matte painting. Sometimes you can, depending on the movie, but like you said here, there's very kind of expert use of miniatures and a lot of the scenes where if you look and look, look very closely, you can kind of tell, but a lot of times it's not even really that noticeable. I mean, I prefer actual effects over CGI, obviously. I don't think, I don't I think, think that's, I, uh, I think, mo I think most people do. A I, yeah, yeah. Not a controversial opinion at all. I'm of the opinion that the real sweet spot is the combination of the two. A lot of people like mis will look at a movie like Mad Max Fury Road and mistakenly think that all that is practical. It's a lot of practical sweetened yeah, with CGI. And then you look at a movie like The Phantom Menace and you think, oh, that's all CGI. When in actuality, there is more practical model work in The Phantom Menace than in the entire original trilogy of Star Wars. Wow. Interesting. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> that's funny because I was thinking 
is it attack of the clones where in the they're in the coliseum because there's this very mm -hmm. distinct gif of this and it's like all of the fighters are there and they're just moving around it's like one of the goofiest things i've ever seen in my in my <laughs> life so that's that's hilarious that to find that i had no idea i would have never yeah. guessed in a million years in terms of practical effects i mean i think i think a lot of filmmakers have missed out on what could have been a golden age of practical effects being integrated with CGI because like back when they were doing Dune it was all all these models and stuff were married optically and it was a process that degraded the image and you know it was it was it was very time consuming and expensive and yeah and, and now like they played with it a little bit on like shows like The Mandalorian where you, you can shoot a model and you can marry the, the that footage into a CG background seamlessly and it's like I don't, I don't know you know and you can you can of course print what do they call it? Uh, computer printing, three D print, three D printing. Yeah, you can three D print models now. You can build it in a computer digitally, and then print it for real, and then shoot that. And you know, That's, I don't know why a lot of flexibility in that. Yeah, yeah. I don't. I don't know why more people haven't embraced that because yeah, because like anything practical that you can shoot is always going to look more realistic than something you can do in the computer realm. I suppose we can maybe move on a little bit to talk about the soundtrack to the film. Toto yeah. is feels like an incongruity. I'm trying to even think of one of those hit Toto songs besides Africa. Rosanna. Yeah, yeah, exactly. That's a good one. Um, yeah. But yeah, it's kind of funny. I mean, I do think, obviously, Brian Eno is involved just with the prophecy theme. But I think the prophecy theme is, like, it's great. It's fantastic. I think I what I love about it is it, it has the epic feel without being like the John Williams clone, right? It has this like mm -hmm. more modern synthesizers incorporated into it, but it still has this old school, really, really just epic. I mean, I love it, especially like the guitar riff is so great. Whatever effect they have on the guitar. In the prophecy the, theme or in or in Toto's music? In the maybe in Toto's. I think I, I think Toto, I get the, and, Toto integrated the bit. guitars. Yeah, people get confused too. Like they they get confused because it's like this is one of the reasons why Toto was a little upset because it was like you know if people liked the music they would give the credit to Eno and if people hated the music ah. they would blame Toto. Most of the music in the movie is Toto, but that prophecy theme is very memorable. And of course, David got a lot of mileage out of it. He uses it in a lot of different places in the film. It is just one track that was. That has a kind of new agey vibe to it. And I think that's what he was looking for. And I'm glad you brought up the music because, yeah, like I got to talk to David Page and Steve Lukather of Toto, and they're both fantastic. And they have obviously some great stories about working on the movie. You know, and in a lot of cases, it's very revealing about the chaos that was happening in the post production process, you know, because the, the music is the thing you put in last. Yeah. And then they, so they were sort of there when things were going pear-shaped real dicey yeah i think it's a really good score i think it's you know it's it's kind of wagnerian it's uh yeah exactly you know it's it's, it's really sweeping and big and ominous and i'm kind of shocked it isn't sampled more or, or talked about more i mean i think part of the reason for that is that toto didn't do any more soundtracks after that they worked on some stuff behind the scenes but like it wasn't actually Toto doing the com the compositions and and stuff. So I think, um, yeah, the fact that we don't have a canon to reckon with the same way we do with someone like Danny Elfman 
you know, or Mark Knopfler, other sort of pop musicians turned composers. I think it's a great, great soundtrack. I mean, even what's his name? I'm blanking on the guy that did the soundtrack for the Villain Wave movie. He's done so much other stuff, but he was in like Hans Zimmer. Hans Zimmer, right? Hans Zimmer was even in, in a pop group. I can't remember who it is off the top of my head. Hans Zimmer is like the antithesis to me. <laughs> He's like the hackiest of the hacks, I think, and, and just in terms of like none of his stuff is particularly memorable. I know he did the soundtrack to Blade Runner 2049, and the only memorable piece of music in that movie is when they reprise the Vangelis at the end. Yeah, the rest of it just sounds like Hans Zimmer fell asleep on his organ or something. Do you have someone that you really, that you interviewed that maybe stands out as far as like a favorite or someone you just really enjoyed the rapport with or that maybe you didn't expect to be so interesting or have a great rapport with? Most of the people I talked to, I really enjoyed. I think, you know, anybody I, anybody I talked to didn't have to talk to me, first of all. True. Right, yeah. That nobody, oh, is ob- that <laughs> nobody is obligated to talk about this movie anymore. Kyle was fantastic. You know, Kyle was, gave me so much time and gave me so many great stories. You know, in terms of ones that are distinct, you know, I think Bob Ringwood was um, exceptionally honest and um, gave me so many great you know, sort of warts and all details. And, you know, was not an asshole about it in any way. You know, he yeah. wasn't trying to badmouth anybody. You know, if anything, he was very complimentary to everybody he worked with. But he was just like, you know, there were problems on this movie. And he was very honest about them. So I really appreciated that. And then um, Molly Rin, I think her story really is very emotional because she's sort of plucked from obscurity, given this major role of uh, Hera in the film, Paul's sort of siege wife. And uh, yeah, and then uh, in post-production had pretty much all of her scenes cut. You can still see her here and there, especially in the in the end scene where she's with the two little children. But like, I can't imagine like sort of the up and down of that. Like she's right, on the yeah. set for a long time and she really, you know, gave it her all. And like David really liked her. I think, you know, it, it was just like, her story, her and Jamas's story were the easiest to excise. Her story is really interesting because it's one that you haven't heard before, I think. You know, I don't think anybody's ever interviewed her about the movie. And she really, you know, she gets to tell her story. And um, and I, I've seen some of the deleted footage of her that's not even out there of her character. And, and she was great. She had a very ethereal presence. I think she was wonderful. And she was supposed to kind of become a part of David Lynch's ensemble players, but it just didn't happen for this or that reason. And if you read the book, you, you'll find her story fascinating. And then probably the most emotional one for me was um, Alicia Witt, because I spoke to her, I think, just two months after her parents died, tragically. And um, I felt a lot of trepidation going into that interview because I... You know, I, I knew that, you know, she was seven years old when she made the movie. So her parents were on set with her the whole time. So a lot of the film was probably inextricably linked in her head with yeah. her parents. Right. And I was very, you know, when we started the interview, I was like, you know, is there anything that's like a no go or anything? And she's like, no, 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 like, let's just talk. And she gave me so many great anecdotes about them and about her experience. And she has a great memory that Alicia Witt, she's incredible. 
I mean, I'm a huge Sopranos fan as well. And it's funny that she is in the D-Girl episode of The Sopranos. It wasn't until many years later after I had seen the episode that I found out that it was her. So that was kind of a cool little thing. I can't remember if you wrote much about this, about the choice to go with a voiceover for her character, Alia. Yeah, I talked about that with Alicia. I think, I think if you want to have a character who seems, you know, beyond her years, that's an interesting choice to go with. I mean, obviously the most famous case of that would be like Mercedes McCambridge doing Linda Blair's voice in The Exorcist, uncredited. Somebody said, I think it was Molly actually said that um, the person who dubbed Alicia was Francesca Honest, actually. Oh, interesting. Ooh. There are some interesting voice cameos that we talk about of like actors in the movie playing other characters uncredited that we talk about in the book. You can read the book, find out. Did the Alia voiceover, do you have a take on that that you want to share? Because I, it kind of worked for me. I'm not mad about it, I think. Oh, no, I, I like it. I think it's interesting. Uh, you know, I mean, you know, the whole thing of David is, you know, his realm, if he has sort of a, if he sort of cornered the market on a, a realm of the cinematic world, it's the uncanny. And I think, uh, you know, that that character, the way she's portrayed in the film certainly embodies that, you know, like she's, she's scary in the, you know, the few scenes she's in. I have a message for Martib. <laughs> she's creepy. And like, and, and, uh... and I did hear, like I said, I've seen some, some footage uh, of her unfiltered of the actual Alicia Witt voice. And she kind of sounds like a little girl. It's a great performance, but it's like, she sounds like a little girl. It's like, Chom wants to come and get me or whatever. <laughs> you know, like she came from New England. She has a little bit of a New England accent. I think it was the right choice. It, it doesn't take away from, you know, anything, um, you know, that she did. I think she's, you know, she's a great actress. And there's a lot of scary parallels too between Alicia and the character of Alia, because they're both prodigies. Right, yeah. They both have red hair. <laughs> Their names are almost the same. And I think Alicia growing up was probably just as... Um, precocious, let's say. Precocious and, and, <laughs> and, and isolated as Alia was, yeah. My brother's here with many Fremen warriors. Many Fremen warriors. They, he, they yeah. are here now. <laughs> and how can this be? <laughs> For you. You opened yeah. the book talking a little bit about how you were having a conversation about the film and someone described it as campy. Mm -hmm. And that just kind of, uh, I don't want to, triggered, let's say, is maybe, <laughs> I mean, <laughs> I'll use that with a kind of half-joking tone, let's say. Mm -hmm. There is a little bit of truth to it, but overall, I don't think that the film is that campy. To me, where I see camp is a lot of the barren behavior. Like, he's very... He's chewing scenery a little bit. And then some of the other Harkonnen stuff is just over-the-top cliche villain laugh stuff. But some of it is like also very intense and like scary too. So I mean, I think some of that comes from the fact that um, you know, I, I love to compare Baron Harkonnen, Kenneth McMillan's Baron Harkonnen with uh, Dennis Hopper's Frank Booth from Blue Velvet. And by the way, Kenneth McMillan was at one point considered to play Frank Booth. <laughs> Both performances are big, really big. The difference is one is in a movie rated PG 
I want to send a movie rated R. And given the dialogue that Dennis Hopper has to say and the things that he does <laughs> in that film, right. you're less inclined to call it campy. I think Ken McMillan's performance is big, but, you know, his character is big and, you know, the character is an egomaniac and the character is, you know, a, a, a sadistic asshole. And yeah, and you... you I think it's a measured performance. If you watch it, there's a lot of subtlety to it too, besides the, you know, the big explosions and, and stuff. Like he's he's doing a lot. It's a very intense performance. He was a very intense actor. I think he was I think he was methody, kind of a little methody. I believe and yeah, I um, can see it totally. You know, Paul Smith is very hammy. He's always hammy in everything. And Sting is is definitely, you know, kind of righteous. You know, yeah i mean they're, they're all big you know it's like it, it is consistent all the harkonnens are big all the harkonnens are very brash and you know and they're, they're assholes also the way that lynch handles the kind of homophobic way that herbert writes the character is interesting because he you know he, you know, he goes from being sort of like a home you know like the homophobic cliche to being this guy that likes to rip the heart cords out of twinks or whatever yeah. <laughs> i think that's an interesting way to go you know but it, but he like frank booth the baron harkonnen of david lynch's movie is a uh he's, he's sort of i don't know what you call it, like a sexual omnivore he wants to have sex with everything. He wants to have sex with his nephew. He wants to do, you know, it's like, and it's not about sex. It's about dominating people. Yeah, power. Absolutely. Yes. And, and I mean, that that's the, uh, you know, he's a, he's a true sociopath in that way. And I think, um, and yeah, and then Frank Booth is the exact same way. I'll fuck anything that moves, you know. It's like Bernhard Conan could have said the same line. Yeah, there's something about the heart plug that really singularizes. Like it communicates the sadistic nature of the baron like so well it's really beautiful i think in in a kind of fucked up way one of my favorite lines from the performance is okay so whenever they add the whole scene the pure lynch scene of foofer and the cat with the <laughs> with the with the rat that is taped to the cat that yeah. uh, foofer has to milk because they've poisoned foofer and uh stings like all i see is an atreides that I want to kill. And McMillan goes, no, no, Fade. Thufa's a Harkonnen now. Right. It's so great. I uh, love that scene. Yeah, somebody else was asking me about that. That scene, they're like, that's not from the book, right? I'm like, no, there is no cat, rat, milking antidote box in the book. And uh, not only that, they made a toy out of it too. I, right. I believe yes, uh, the sting okay. figure came with that. And I'm just like, what the? That is a perfect example of how misguided That's hilarious. The, the merchandising bonanza man. around Dune was. The 80s, what a decade, man. Just what an incredible time to be alive, I think. Ultimately. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. No, it's true. Like, I mean, it's like, you know, like in what other decade could you have toys made from Robocop and Rambo and Terminator? Or it's like, what were you thinking? <laughs> If they could have, they would have done like uh, I don't know, like like Brundlefly action figures, transforming Brundlefly, you know, whatever. They they would have done it. In the book, the Baron, I would kind of liken him to almost a Tywin Lannister kind of character, where like his he's definitely like his appetites are sort of present, but they're more. It's not so out in the open, right? Like he's not so flamboyant. I think 
It's unfortunate. I mean, that is kind of, you know, where, you know, I think some of Herbert's own unfortunate politics kind of bleed into it. You know, I think he he was a little bit probably homophobic in real life. I know he had a gay son. He did have a gay son. Yeah. And he didn't take it very well. No, he wasn't happy about that. He was not like a super supportive. Oh, you just do whatever you want to do, son. He was not like that, sadly. And um, everybody has blind spots, you know. But I mean, you know, that is part of the literary legacy of Dune. And I guess it hasn't aged that well. But for some reason, I think the way Lynch handled it is kind of cool. I heard on another podcast that you you don't collect action figures per se. <laughs> I, I will have to admit that I did buy. I don't have the original run of the figurines, mm-hmm. but I did buy the what is it? Super seven mm-hmm. about the whole set that they have available. Yeah, yeah, and I interviewed the guy, Josh Herbelsheimer from Super 7. I interviewed him in the book about that, and it's so cool that they put those out, too. Yeah, I believe that the Super 7 ones are 3.75-inch, and the uh, LJN ones were 5-inch. Have you seen them up close, by chance? The Super 7 or levels? whatever. Oh, I mean, I photographed them for the book. Okay, gotcha. They sent me two sets, and um, I, I gave one away at my first signing. Yeah, and uh, no, I think I think they're fantastic because it's like they 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 stuck so true to the original LJN designs, and it for all the people out there who don't want to pay whatever a hundred bucks a pop for for those things, you can now get them again. I mean, I used to get them at yard sales and stuff, you know, mistaking them for Star Wars toys. <laughs> the one that I really lust after though is the is the worm. I gave mine away. <laughs> At my first signing to a lucky lady, I was so happy uh, it found a good home. I hope it's in a terrarium or something somewhere. No, <laughs> no, but I, I love the way um, there's this writer from Medium named John Devore, and uh, he describes that worm toy as a a ribbed for your pleasure nightmare toy that oh, Freud would, about right. would advise yeah. against buying. <laughs> uh, that's hilarious. I'll show you this really. Quick. I don't. This might not even. I have a Chris knife. Oh, cool. It's a molding from the original prop. Yeah, there oh, you go. Sick. You can kind of see it. Yeah. And it even <laughs> has the gold end. I mean, it's painted gold, but it's a pretty cool little prop for like a hundred bucks, I think. It's nice. More or less somewhere in that range. Yeah, a lot of the actors told me that they wish they'd swiped Chris knives and stuff from the set, but they uh, were told they were told, oh no, we gotta save those for the sequel, guys. <laughs> that's, that's great. I love it. We could maybe wrap up here if you i don't know if you have a fight anything that we haven't touched on that maybe you wanted to discuss in particular that you know you were very passionate about as far as the book that kind of stands out or my sort of great white whales on the book were like um you know finding out about the casting which i did finding out you know trying to get the real story about why uh john dykstra and apogee effects left the film which i kind of did i mean i talked to dykstra <laughs> and i talked yeah. to the guys that replaced him the truth is somewhere in between i think and then uh yeah and then beyond that you know it's just get kind of getting to the bottom of this tm thing which um you know again you know it, it was so vindicating to have like you know david lynch kind of say yeah you're right i hope that that makes people see the film in a different light and um it is a worthy movie, you know, and people really need to, uh, I think Lynch fans and sci-fi fans should should all, you know, if you read the book, my hope is if, if you like the film, you'll like it more. And if you hate the movie, you will hate it less. 
after you read the book. But yeah, I mean, I, I guess if you read anything that was 500 pages about something, you'd probably like right. it a little yeah, bit. Exactly. Yes. Yeah, um, the only other thing maybe was like the pugs. Um, <laughs> space pugs hell yeah <laughs> which uh you know like i don't know i don't know if i need to talk about that but I, I will say if you if you read the book i think i get to the bottom of the pugs i think i figured i think i cracked the code on it and i think once you read what i have to say it's pretty hard to not see it that way because it's like a lot of people think the pugs are just some weird detail that david lynch threw in for shits and giggles and i think that's absolutely not true I think they're there for a purpose and yeah, I don't know if, and I don't know if people will agree with me, but it's in the book. Check it out. I have up a picture of, uh, this is also one of my favorite scenes and we can maybe kind of wrap up mm -hmm. with a little fun discussion on this a little bit. With my favorite character still. Yeah, yeah exa it's exactly. A... And I think Taylor's kind of a, if I'm not mistaken, you're a kind of a McGill oh, yeah. fan as well. His voice is fantastic. The way he says the fate of Keen here, I just yeah. absolutely Love it. But another great. Yeah, he 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 brings, uh, I can't say it any other way. He brings that big dick energy. What's interesting about this photograph is here's a little bit of trivia for you. Okay, so the character to the left of Stilgar is Othiam. And yes, he, and that actor was also with him in License to Kill. He is in the scene whenever Mordib is training the Fremen in the weirding way, the with the weirding modules. Mm -hmm. He's, mm -hmm. he's the one that goes, Usul no longer needs the weirding module. That's right. Yes. I forget his name, but yeah, he's a... Uh, uh, so actually yeah. what's kind of, what's really kind of neat is I didn't even realize that some of these other Fremen characters were named. He's mm -hmm. one of them, the second one being Korba, mm -hmm. that show up in Dune Messiah. Yes. So Korba is the high priest of the Kizarat in Dune Messiah, and I'll show you a picture of him in a minute, but Othiam is the one, he's the house that they go to at the end of Dune Messiah, where the stone burner or whatever explodes. Oh, interesting. Okay. Because right. okay. he was one of the Fedakin or Fedaikin, I think is how it's actually supposed to be pronounced. <laughs> There's a lot of mispronunciations in the movie. Like Chaney and Chani. I'm going to pull up a picture of Corber real quick. Yeah, I know what he looks like. He has gray hair, right? Yeah, he had the kind of balding. I tried for so long to find out who that actor was. I think it might be this guy who was in um, Pickpocket, but I'm not sure because that because he was that actor was credited on the call sheets a lot. But yeah, that, um, that's Corba. Yes, not a hundred percent sure of the actor playing him there. I guess the final thing we could do is if I don't know if you ha have thought about you probably haven't thought this far ahead, but do you have any kind of projects or maybe even events associated with the book that you want to maybe plug or discuss or anything like that any of your anywhere else where we could find maybe some of your other work that you've written because you mentioned being a, a film journalist as well i'm in the process of uploading a website that i just built so that'll that maybe might be up by the time this podcast goes up i am on the social media site formerly known as prince um i'm just my name <laughs> M-A-X-E-V-R-Y. I'm also on Instagram and Max Avery One. And if you want to find if, if you're less interested in the me of it all and more interested in the doing of it all, that's where you want to go. You want to go to the Instagram because the Instagram is entirely devoted to the book and to David Lynch's Dune. And um, yeah, I post lots of quotes and facts and stuff, even stuff that's not in the book. I mean, I think the idea is to 
if the book is popular enough to do do a paperback that might have a little bit more stuff in it. We'll just have to see. But I don't I don't know. Like I, 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 that's not a guarantee. So you should definitely get the book now while you can. <laughs> and um, I'm working on something with uh, actually right after I get off of this podcast, I'm going to be talking to uh, to Molly Rin again about possibly releasing one of her uh, deleted scenes with a an introduction by her. Um, oh, wow. I, cool. I think that I think that'll be it, it's one of the deleted scenes nobody's seen. So I think I think that'll be and it involves Alia and it's great. Um, it's like something from a Cronenberg movie, actually. Um, that sounds amazing. I forget, actually, I, I lied that I was going to wrap up, but uh, I can't remember the situation with the footage that was originally shot. I vaguely recall there might have been a fire and it's unsure. It's unclear whether some of the original yeah. Lynch's footage survives to this day. Yeah, so in 2008, there was a fire at Universal. A lot of shit got destroyed, like a, a, not just movies, but, you know, music, original masters of music and all sorts of stuff. It was a terrible fire. And um, I do not know if the Dune footage was there or not because Dune was uh, – it was it was released by Universal Pictures in America and some other territories, but it's actually an independent production technically. Right, yeah. um, De La Rentis it, films, yeah. Yeah, it was actually a De La Rentis movie. So the, it's possible that the material – might not have been stored at Universal. So I asked Rafaela De Laurentiis about this. She said she didn't know, but she could find out. And then she never got back to me. So <laughs> it's possible I might be able to get in touch with her again and ask her about it again. I mean, there have been... She also might not have told me because there are rumors that Criterion might be working on ah, right. a new version of the film. You That'd know, awesome. I mean, oh, I, I would... I would do backflips if that happened. <laughs> yes, same, um, totally. I'm 42 years old, so I'll probably die <laughs> doing that. But um, gotta yeah, get your like, prana I, bindu training, my friend. <laughs> yeah, Kyle said that when he envisioned that when he was reading the book, because Kyle's a huge Dune fan, like an OG Dune fan from even before the movie, and uh, he said he envisioned something more like uh, what they did in Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon, for that fighting style. I encourage if if you're a Dune fan, definitely you know. Pick this book up. Find me on social. Let me know what you think. And uh, it was it was two years of my life <laughs> writing this book. Uh, so I, I I love talking to people about it now that it's out in the world. And if you want to see more of my other stuff, I do a lot of uh, Blu-ray audio commentaries for companies like Kino Lorber and Arrow. I have one coming out in November. It's uh, Michael Mann's Black Hat, which is coming to 4K. And I have an co audio commentary on that. Oh, that's awesome. Nice. That stuff, the Instagram, Twitter, et cetera, mm -hmm. we can put links in the show notes so that people can find you really nicely and conveniently. I was just thinking, though, we didn't really talk much about the kind of ironic, the kind of funny relationship between Dino De Laurentiis and, and David Lynch and that he kind mm -hmm. of like Lynch said he was great. Like Dino was great. This is actually the impression <laughs> that my uh, my roommate did the other night. He's like, oh, you know, Dino, he's he's a numbers guy. He wants he, he wants the picture to make money. The line he says in his book, uh, Room to Dream, he's like, he's like, Dino didn't want poetry. No fucking way. He wanted action. Exactly. <laughs> no, did you guys have any other questions or anything? Or are we wrapping up? I think we can wrap yeah. up another edition of the Machinic Unconscious Happy Hour with Cooper Cherry and Taylor Atkins. Thanks to Max Avery for joining us and long live the fighters. The very rules of eating, of negativity and singularity. Including the ultimate form of security, which is podcast. Okay. Okay.
this is the typical violence of Violent because what happens there is the murder of the real, the vanishing point of reality. Let's not have a misunderstanding here. What I mean is the following. Nothing left but recycled, whitewashed, lobotomized people, as in a block work orange.